This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Reading from Mark chapter 9, verses 33 to 41. Then they came to Capernaum, and when Jesus was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me but the one who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. Hear the word of the Lord. The second Bible reading is from Philippians chapter 1, verse 12a to 18. Paul said, I want you to know, beloved, what has happened to me has actually helped to spread the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having been made confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, dare to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear. Some proclaim, some proclaim Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. These proclaim Christ out of love, knowing that I have been put here for the defence of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but intending to increase my suffering in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Just this, that Christ is proclaimed in every way, whether out of false motives or true, and in that I rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Sophie and James, for those readings. Uh, let's pray as we come to look at God's Word. Thank you, Father, that all Scripture is breathed by you and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. Open our hearts to receive your Word, that we may know you better and be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Has your life turned out the way you expected it to? John Lennon once said, life's what happens when you're busy making other plans. And perhaps this is not a particularly difficult point to make right now to people who've been essentially locked in their homes for who knows how long to come. This is certainly not how I imagined living in 2021, and I'm sure that's true for you as well. But a bit like the late Donald Rumsfeld's known unknowns, life experience tells you that it's the unpredictable that is predictable. We plan, I suppose most of us do, for health, long life, 
prosperity, relationship, happiness, a fulfilling career, and for children who will do the same if we want to have children. And yet, who hasn't experienced the surprise redundancy, the broken relationship with the one you thought was the one, unplanned singleness, the inability to conceive, or conceiving when you didn't want to, the chronic or the acute disease, the accident on the road or at work, the financial loss, the unexpected death of a friend or a loved one, or the wayward child. And especially, as those who've signed up for Christian discipleship, who've given themselves to follow Christ, we may feel a double grief here, because we may feel that God should have done a better job for us. If only we could get him at a press conference, a little bit like uh, Kerry Chant or Gladys Berejiklian, we might have a few questions to put to him. How has what has happened to me served to glorify you, God? Why have you let this happen to someone who's on your team? Why is your church so discredited in our time, so racked with division and scandal and so frequently criticised and ridiculed in the media? This is certainly not how I would have planned it. And this may lead us to a deeper doubt that if things have turned out this way, then is God really for me? Or is he really powerful to do what he says? Or is he even there? And I guess those are three of the most prominent doubts that we have. The doubt whether God is there but doesn't care. Or that, that God is there and isn't powerful to do what he says he is. And then the doubt that builds on those two doubts. The doubt whether he exists at all. And Maybe we give up at that point and just say, as many are saying about this pandemic, it is what it is. Now, for the Apostle Paul, life had not turned out as he had planned it either. He'd been called by Jesus himself to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He'd been smacked off his horse on the road to Damascus, blinded by the light, and called to this extraordinary mission, an unexpected mission, a mission that had taken him to extraordinary places all over Asia Minor and Greece, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ wherever he went in places like Ephesus and Corinth and Athens. As he went around evangelizing, proclaiming the gospel, seeing people turn from darkness into the marvelous light of Christ, moving from death to life. And he had grand plans to keep going. He even wrote once about his dream to take the gospel as far as Spain, which in those days was the edge of the known universe. But now as we open the Philippian letter we find that things have become a bit stuck for Paul. He's already spent at least two years under armed guard. He's made it to Rome, but he's made, there, he's made it there under arrest. And he can't go outside. He's stuck in a room with a soldier. And the Philippians have likely written to him or passed a message on to him that's really quite anxious. Paul, while you're rotting in prison... What's happening to the gospel? What are we supposed to see in this? This isn't how we expected it would turn out. You are our hope. And here you are, stuck. And what's more, Paul, while you're in prison, your influence is on the wane. 
There are other preachers who've popped up. They're preaching Christ and they're trying to steal your influence away. You're losing control of the movement. So, so what now? Well, Paul does not despair. And he doesn't shrug his shoulders and say, it is what it is. He's got two things for us to learn today. Two things which will change our perspective on our disappointments. The first one is that God works his purposes out, even through our disappointments. And secondly, that Christ is what matters most in the end. Firstly, he works out his purposes even through our disappointments. And secondly, that Christ is what matters most in the end. So firstly, looking at verses 12 to 14, God works his purposes out even through our disappointments. After telling the Philippians how much he longs for them with the guts of Christ, remember that from a couple of weeks ago, and from last week, in verses 9 to 11, he told them that he prays for them, that they would overflow with the love of God and abound in insight, that they would then bear fruit for the glory of God. He addresses their worry in verses 12 through to 14, doesn't he? It's as if with his mind, mind's eye, he sat down to write and he could see their furrowed brows before him. He says there, I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me has actually helped to spread the gospel. It's even a surprise to Paul. But his imprisonment has not imprisoned the word of God. The good news of Jesus Christ has not stopped spreading just because Paul has been locked down. The friendly virus of the gospel is far more contagious than that. In fact, more than that, Paul says that his imprisonment, which he never would have planned, has actually advanced the cause of the gospel. Why? Well, for two reasons. Firstly, he says, it's become known through the whole imperial guard to everyone else and to everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, the Imperial Guard were also known as the Praetorian Guard, and they were famous in ancient Rome because they were the hand-picked, highly paid, highly trained and skilled bodyguards of the emperor, a bit like the US Secret Service who guard the president. Their influence as the only armed force allowed within the city limits of Rome was often decisive in political matters. And they could make or break an emperor. Not long after Paul wrote his letter, about five years later, in AD 69, a year that sometimes they called the year of the four emperors, because there was that much chopping and changing, a little bit like Australian prime ministers, they assassinated the emperor Galba. So far from being his bodyguard at that point, they, uh, they did with his body. These were tough, no-nonsense, powerful, sometimes brutal men. And that Paul was being guarded by the Praetorians suggests that he was thought of to be quite a significant prisoner, possibly a dangerous one. And what happened? Because he was a prisoner, Paul was able to witness to Christ as some of the most powerful people in the world. People who were close to the Emperor Nero and part of his household. They could see that his imprisonment was for Christ. His reputation quickly grew. As he was guarded by these guards, they no doubt went back to their, 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 uh, their cohort and said, this guy, he's got something, he's quite remarkable. 
And soon the message spread. Now, not all of them had become Christians, but it certainly got them talking about Jesus, this obscure person from a far corner of the empire. And some of them had indeed turned to Christ. At the end of Paul's letter in chapter 4, Paul adds in a greeting that must have surprised and delighted the Philippians. He says in verse 22 of chapter 4, All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The gospel of Jesus Christ had made its way into the imperial palace itself, even though its chief spokesman was in prison. And now the Philippians could count as their brothers and sisters people who walked the very corridors of power. Now the second thing that encourages Paul here, firstly, of course, that his, that his imprisonment, what that his imprisonment was for Christ to be known amongst the imperial guard. The second thing is that the Christians in Rome had really received a boost from Paul's imprisonment, and so now were boldly speaking the gospel. They were really going well. There were Christians in Paul when he arrived there, Christians in Rome when Paul arrived there. We know that from Paul's letter to them, the letter to the Romans. And now Paul can report that these Christians were sharing the good news with greater boldness than before and without fear. And how did Paul's imprisonment lead to this? It seems a little counterintuitive. The Philippians were worried about his being locked up, but not the Roman Christians. They'd been able to visit Paul and receive his encouragement and his wisdom and see his example of fearlessness and boldness. And they had seen the progress of the gospel, even amongst the palace guard. Even though the fear of persecution was very real, and of course Nero, the emperor, was a byword for persecuting Christians, and he certainly persecuted them a few years after this letter was written, they were energised by Paul's ministry, and the church was growing. You and I may not be able to see how God will do his work. Things won't have gone according to our plans. But the word of God will do its powerful work to save and redeem sinners by the blood of Jesus Christ. As Paul says elsewhere, the word of God is not in chains. Humanly, we may see only failure and pain. We may see our weakness and the weakness of the church. But God does not think as we think. God does not see things as we see them. He does not work as we work. And he's an expert at weaving the complexity of human failings and disappointments into his perfect purposes. As the hymn goes, one of my favourites, every sorrow has its place in this tapestry of grace. He's an expert weaver of every complexity into his purposes. Even when people intend things for evil, as Joseph would say to his brothers, God intends them for good. God works his purposes out. Just this week, I saw there's a new campaign from humanists and secularists to get more Australians to tick no religion in the national census. Now, it saddens me to, that I expect that they will in some degree succeed. It's a campaign based on misinformation and outright lies, I think, but it also makes a lot of mileage out of the undoubted failures of the church. 
A less religious Australia, a less Christian Australia will be a less generous, a less compassionate and a less just Australia. A less Christian Australia will not be good news for those who are the most vulnerable in our community. It disappoints me to think that as a nation we are moving away at a great pace from our Christian heritage. And I find particularly galling the breathtaking arrogance of many of the secularists, an arrogance bred of ignorance. I feel like the words of the psalmists uh, really come to mind here sometimes when they say to God, why do you let your enemies speak so ill of you? But what would Paul's attitude be? He would not be daunted. The will of God is not thwarted by mere census data and online petitions. The gospel is far more powerful than that. And maybe, just maybe, the humbling of the church is exactly what will make it a more powerful witness to Jesus Christ. Maybe this will herald a more faithful and more committed church. Maybe this will herald an era of the, the unstinting declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the kind of thing that God would do. I've told the story from this pulpit before of the Christian church in China. The last missionary agency, the Chinese Inland Mission, was expelled by the communists in 1953, ages ago. At that time, there were 700,000 Christians in China, which sounds like a lot, but is actually hardly any, less than 1% of the population. Today, there are perhaps as many, 67, as many as 67 million Christians in China. So, we ought to have Paul's confidence that God not only cares, but that he knows what he's doing, even when life does not go as planned, even when we cannot see what the next step is. And so that leads Paul to his second response to being locked up in verses 15 to 18. He's got a new perspective here on what really matters. We imagine that news had got through to Paul, that in his absence there were preachers who had tried to take his place, and there were some questions over their motives. The Philippians had been saying, look, Paul, someone, did you, someone had said to him, did you know that these guys are making the most of your absence to get themselves a name and a following. And they want you to know that you're finished. In fact, they're quite happy in, in kind of making you know that they're doing well. You must be a loser since you, you're locked up. And so they're trying to get your following. God has clearly abandoned you, they're saying. Clearly, there were celebrity preachers, then as now, who were more interested in their own brand. And they saw it as a competitive business. They were like a real estate agent stealing clients from another agent while the first one's on maternity leave. Now, how would you expect Paul to react? How would you react? You'd be filled with indignation, with concern, frustration and anger. You could understand Paul being bitter, couldn't you? Just itching to get out there alongside these people who were preaching the gospel from poor motives. What about the influence and the reputation he built up at great personal cost over many years? What about his brand? But Paul's response is a cracker. What does it matter? Just this, that Christ is proclaimed in every way, whether out of false motives or true, and in that I rejoice. 
I've puzzled over this response for ages. It's a really curious response, isn't it? Hang on a minute, Paul. Doesn't the integrity of Christian preachers matter a great deal? I mean, isn't it really important that people preach the gospel for good reasons? Won't bad preachers produce warped Christians? Shouldn't we do all we can to make sure egomaniacs are not in the ministry? I think Paul would not deny this. He spends ages telling Timothy to make sure that the leaders of his churches have the right character, that they're not ambitious or greedy for money, that they're not quarrelsome, that it isn't about them, that they're servants, that as shepherds they tend the flocks, not eat them. But his point here is more about himself. We would expect him to be upset about his loss of influence and power. But that's not Paul. What matters to him is not his legacy or his power, but whether Christ is proclaimed. If Paul is forgotten, Paul doesn't mind. If Paul is overlooked, if Paul is anonymous, he doesn't care. That's not the most important thing. The most important thing is do people hear the name of Jesus? Is is God's powerful gospel at work to change hearts? Then he's happy to be sidelined. And God's powerful gospel works even through, sometimes through preachers whose motives are mixed. What makes Paul rejoice is that for whatever reason, Christ is proclaimed. It's an entirely different response to his disappointments, isn't it? It's extraordinary. For him, it's not about him in the end. It's about the name of Jesus. If Christ is exalted, then the details don't matter so much. But what about his disappointments and his sufferings? Is Paul just denying his own pain? Is he sort of distracting himself so he doesn't go mad, kind of like Netflix does for us? You know, it's something to do so we take our mind off our troubles. Now, this question matters because... It might be that we see this as advice simply to forget our disappointments by focusing on the gospel, using the gospel as a distraction. And yet, it doesn't address the issue of my real grief and pain and shame and loss. Now, Paul does not forget these. Instead, he sees how the sovereign Lord God works in the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. And so that's where he brings his frustration and his loss. That's where he turns his frustration and his loss. Has life not turned out as you had planned? Well, probably. (laughs) The gospel is your deep comfort and reassurance. Jesus Christ, who died and rose again, is Lord. Our Our greatest enemies, sin and death, the thing that bring us the deepest disappointments, They are on the run. What we need then is to catch Paul's infectious enthusiasm for the gospel. For him, this is what matters. Because it is by hearing the gospel that people are rescued. Pardon me. The gospel declares God's victory over sin and death. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. Jesus Christ is God's astounding plans for the world, including us. Our lives trail in his wake. 
When our plans go awry, as they inevitably do, the gospel is our consolation. And so it's right that the gospel is also our fascination, our consolation, and so our fascination. So when we are disappointed, let's have Paul's confidence in the gospel and let's have Paul's desire for Christ to be proclaimed in every way. Have Paul's confidence in the gospel. It's completely natural for us to make plans. We ought to make plans. But God's plans are not our plans. And just as well, since we are so limited. John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, once wrote to a friend of his these words. He said, We judge of things by their present appearances, but the Lord sees them in their consequences. If we could do likewise, we would be perfectly off his mind. But as we cannot, it is an unspeakable mercy that he will manage for us, whether we are pleased with his management or not. We can't see what God can see. We can't know his perfect will. But we can know that in his mercy, he manages for us. Whether we are pleased with his management or not, whether at the moment we feel that it is what we want or not, God will manage for us. He will accomplish more than we can imagine by the word of his power. We may be weak, but the, power, the word of God is still unstoppable. It will not be stopped by cultural trends or by census data or by celebrity opinion or by clicks on the internet or even by COVID-19. It will not be stopped by your personal disappointments. So as Billy Graham once said, don't let the disappointment of your plans cut you off from God or make you think that the future is hopeless. Paul thought the door of the gospel had been slammed shut, only to discover that it was still wide open. Ask then, what is God doing through what has happened to you? Because he is working his purposes out. Ask, what is he doing? And have Paul's desire for Christ, that his, his name would be proclaimed. That gives... Paul, his focus, a focus that we should share, his desire that Christ's name be preached around the world. In the face of our uncertainty and our bewilderment, Paul does not wallow. What matters? That Christ is preached. This is because this is what he puts all his hope in. This is what causes him to rejoice, because this is where God is doing his great work. And he's a model for us here. Rejoicing in the work of God despite his own disappointments. He's so refreshingly humble. A humility we'll see worked out in the next couple of chapters of uh, Philippians. Could you be like him? Like Paul? Could you make it your longing to see Christ's name praised above all? Could you make it your wish, your desire to see Christ preached in every place? It's why here at St. Mark's we long to share Christ with those who don't know him. It is our deep desire to do this. Here in the eastern suburbs, 
in our cities of Sydney, across our nation and around the world. It's what we point our time and resources to because Jesus Christ is our hope and he is our world's best hope. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.